Well, welcome to The Crossing today. Glad that you are here. If you came for the first time last week, we're just honored that you would come back and be with us again this week. I want to give a big shout out to our Southeast campus. Love you guys. To our microsites, we have four getting ready to launch our fifth. And to everybody who's watching online, let's just give them a big hand, big welcome. Glad you're part of The Crossing family with us. Well, today we start this brand new series called Explicit Lyrics. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to walk verse by verse through this book called the Song of Solomon. Now, this was a book that in the Bible times, you were not even allowed to read it until you were either married or 30 years old. I keep telling you, you need to read your Bible. You know, this is good stuff that's in here. So we're going to be diving into this. But every generation has communicated their love through songs. You've got At Last with Etta James. You have Elvis, Love Me Tender. But I'm a product of the 80s. And so I grew up listening to songs like Journey's Open Arms or Bon Jovi, I'll Be There For You. These five words I swear to you. Um, poisons, every rose has its thorn. But for Darla and I, our song was from Chicago 16, You're the Inspiration. That was just our song. You didn't know I was so romantic, did you? It's pretty amazing there. But there's nothing that can compare to country music. I'll just share a couple of these songs with you. I did not make these up. Here's this one. Get your tongue out of my mouth because I'm kissing you goodbye. <laughs> and how can I miss you if you won't go away? There's just something about a song. Well, the book of Song of Solomon is a song. Solomon was a songwriter. It's also called the Song of Songs, and it literally means of all the songs that I've written, this is the Song of Songs. This is the best one out of all of them. First Kings says that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. And of all of the songs that he wrote, this is the masterpiece. It was a song that was devoted to human love with this one thought in mind. That God's way not only works, but it is better than the world's ways. It's better than the world's ways. So whenever we start a relationship series, I, I, I think there's some emotions that begin to come up in all of us. So I just want to lay out some ground rules for these next few weeks. Okay, and so here's ground rule number one, that we have a tendency to hear this for someone else. So if you're sitting there, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse, you're going to want to elbow them. You're going to want to tell them to write this down. So we're not going to do that, are we? We're going to listen for ourselves. Don't think about how it applies to someone else. Listen of how it can help you. And then number two, here's the second ground rule. I want you to look forward and not back. Because sometimes when we talk about relationships, when we talk about what the Bible says about relationships, that we tend to filter it through what has happened to us. We filter it through our past. Listen, God makes all things new. He is in the business of fresh starts. So from this day forward, you can get this one right. Well, this book, this book, The Song of Solomon, was written like a couple in love looking back on their life together. Over the next few weeks, we will see them fall in love. We'll read their text messages to one another. We will see their wedding 
and their honeymoon night. We will see them work through conflict, and we will end by seeing their love growing deeper as they grow older together. And in fact, those are the next five topics of these five weeks that we're going to be working through. But because this is a song, because it is poetry, it is hard to understand. So I'm going to do my best to explain this to you and to explain everything that's going on. And so to start that off, I want to explain to you the three main characters that we're going to hear from in this story. The first character, um, sometimes you see it um, up above, it's, it's listed as he or lover. This is Solomon. Whenever you see this, this is Solomon's words. This is what he is saying. Then you'll say, you'll see she or beloved. This is the Shulamite woman. Now, we don't know what her name is, but actually, the way that it's said, this is a female version. It's a, it's a female way of saying Solomon. So this is Mrs. Solomon. We're going to hear from Mrs. Solomon. And then the friends. They're referred to as the daughters of Jerusalem. These are the friends of this young woman who has fallen in love, and so we're going to see them cheering their love relationship on. And so here is how Solomon starts this out. He just says, Solomon's Song of Songs, this is my masterpiece. This is the best one on the playlist. Let him kiss me, this is her speaking, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Saying that the way that you love me the way that you treat me, the way that you treat other people is better than anything that money could buy. She says, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes, that just from you walking into a room, you make everything better. That when you walk into a room, you make everybody feel better about themselves. Your name is like the perfume poured out. Now, in the Old Testament, when they referred to your name, your name, it represented your character. It represented your reputation, your integrity. Here she's saying that your name, it is, your character is such that when you walk into a room, it just permeates the room. And then I love here what she says. She says, no wonder the young women love you. They all love you, but they can't have you because you are mine. You're all mine. Going to go on here. Um, it says, take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me to his chambers. Now, this is referring to his bedroom. And so we're going to see their love begin to cultivate. And we're going to find out later on that this is going to happen, but not yet. It is not time for them yet. And the friends respond. They say, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. So these friends are coming along and saying, we are so happy for you. We celebrate your love. You know, you, maybe you have some people in your life that don't celebrate you or don't celebrate that. They're saying, we are celebrating for you, that we want this all to be about you. Now she responds. She says, how right they are to adore you. Because all of these, these friends, they adore you. She says, dark I am, yet lovely. Daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Keter, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm dark. Because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had neglect. Now, whenever she talks about her own vineyard, she's talking about her own body. 
She says, I had to neglect my own body because my stepbrothers made me go work in the vineyards and I got a suntan. My stepbrothers made me go work in, you know, in the fields and now my, my skin is all dark from the sun. Now we read this and we don't quite understand this because we spend a lot of money trying to get a suntan. We go to tanning beds, we have tanning lotion, you, you lay out in your backyard, you go to the beach, and people are trying to get the perfect tan. But in Solomon's culture, a tan meant that you were a laborer. A tan meant that you were low class. It implied that she had been working in the fields. She has this farmer's tan, and she's saying, don't stare at me because I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed by the way that I look. She's saying that you're gonna, if you're going to have this godly relationship, you have to get past the physical. It has its place, but it is not our focus. And so Solomon is going to begin to unpack three attractions for us, and we're going to see this first attraction begin to permeate out of this scripture right here. He says, tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep midday. Why should I be like the veiled women beside the flocks of your friends? Now, when she says this right here, the veiled women, this is a reference to prostitutes. What the prostitutes would do is they would go hang out at the edge of the fields. And so the men who are taking care of the sheep, when there is just that boring time of day where they had nothing to do, these women would be at the edge of the fields trying to seduce them, trying to get their attention. She's saying, I'm not going to be like that. That's not who I am. And this was attractive to Solomon. Solomon's saying, I'm looking for something different. I don't want that kind of woman. I want something different. And what Solomon begins to talk about is this first attraction. It is spiritual attraction. That one of the most attractive things that you can offer is letting God be first in your life. See, there is something attractive when, when God has your whole heart because it just spills out on everybody who is around you. When I get up and I see my wife studying her Bible in the morning, there's just something attractive about that. Because when God has our hearts, that's when our marriage is the best. See, one of the, the foundational questions, the first questions we ask is, what is this person's relationship with Jesus? Now, I'm not saying they have to be a perfect Christian. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm asking, do they have a personal relationship with Jesus? Because it is the common ground of faith. Here's how the Apostle Paul says this. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I know this sounds old-fashioned, and you even read this and go, what in the world does he mean by do not be yoked together? What does that mean? Well, in, in ancient times, whenever they were trying to plow up a field, or if they wanted to pull a heavy load, they would take two oxen about the same size and about the same strength, and they would put a yoke on them. And this yoke would keep the oxen going in sync, going in the same direction. See, you would never put a horse and an oxen together because it would tear them apart. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying when you enter into a relationship with someone who is not a believer, 
you don't have the same values. You don't have the same convictions. The very foundation of your marriage is not in common, that you are pulling in different directions. Now, this does not mean that you can't have a happy marriage and a fulfilling marriage. It just means that if you enter into a marriage relationship with the person who is not on the same spiritual page as you, it is going to be difficult. See, marriage is already difficult, and when you throw this into it, it makes it infinitely harder. And I know what some of you say. Some of you say, well, well you know, what if I lead him to Jesus? Or, you know, what if I can influence her spiritually? I call this missionary dating. You know, that you date, you know, I'm going to be a missionary and bring them to Jesus. And here's my suggestion, just from my own experience, that you do that before you enter into a marriage relationship. Because this is a significant gamble. That when you enter into a relationship where the foundation of faith is different, it makes it difficult. And maybe you ask, well, what if I'm in a marriage with an unbeliever? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses that as well. He says, if it is up to you, you stay in the marriage. Because by your life, the way that you live your life, you may bring them to the Lord. But if they leave you because of your commitment to God, if they leave you because you're committed to Jesus, he says, then you're no longer bound to that marriage. Now, let me just speak to the men here for just a minute. I just want to speak just just to the guys. Because we need to be, guys, we need to be the spiritual leaders of our family. We need to rise up and show what it means to be a man of God, to live godly lives, to, to show by example what it means to be a follower of Jesus. My daughter said something the other day. She said, I want to have all boys because I want to raise godly men. Show your kids, show your family what it means to be a man of God. Well, Solomon is going to begin to unpack the second attraction. The first one is spiritual attraction, but now he's going to begin to speak about the second attraction. Here's what he says. He says, I liken you, my darling. Now, this actually means my female friend, that at the heart of this relationship is a friendship that's here. He says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. Now, he calls her, he says, you are a mare. Now, this does not sound terribly romantic to me. And I'm just going to say, I would not suggest you go home and call your wife a horse. It's not going to go well unless you want to sleep on the couch. In Solomon's culture, it wasn't a mare who pulled a chariot. It was a stallion. But during battle, what they would do sometimes is they would put a mare on a chariot. So when they went into the battle, the enemy had no control of their chariots because their horses were in la-la land chasing after all the mares. Here's what Solomon is saying. He's saying that when you walk into a room, my attention is only on you. I cannot get my eyes off of you. And she responds. She says, while the king is at his table. Now, this is in public because the king is, this is when he is out and about when people see him, my perfume spread its fragrance. What she's saying there 
is that you're proud of me, that you're attracted to me, and you express it even when you're around other people. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms. These are flowers from the vineyards of En Gedi. What she is saying is, is this needs to be developed. This physical part needs to be developed. That there is something that happens. But first, what we see, it's an emotional attraction. There is an emotional attraction. She's saying that that when we begin to develop this emotional attraction, something happens in our relationship. Listen to me, married couples here for just a second. If you would spend a little more time feeding the emotional needs of your spouse, it will transform your marriage. If you're not yet married, this is one of the keys to a healthy relationship. It's feeding into the emotional needs of one another. See, we have this misconception that, that only women have emotional needs. That's just not true. We all have emotional needs. They just look different. The Apostle Paul tell, talks about these emotional needs. In the most lengthy chapter about marriage in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul ends with this verse right here. This is how he ends. He says, so again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. See, this right here is what the Apostle Paul says. This is simple, but this is a command that each man must love his wife. Each wife must respect her husband. So why would God say that? It is because God knows us. God knows how you are wired. God knows that the primary need of a woman is to be loved. And the primary need of a man is to be respected. That is why when a woman watches Sleepless in Seattle, she tears up because it makes her feel loved. Her primary need is to feel loved. For a guy, he tears up during Saving Private Ryan because it's a movie about respect and honor. See, this doesn't mean that a husband doesn't need to feel loved and a wife does not need to feel respected. See, we naturally give what we want. But Paul is telling us that you meet the primary need of your spouse in an emotional attraction. It's this emotional attraction. He's talked about this spiritual attraction, this emotional attraction, and now he's going to talk about the last one. And this is Solomon speaking to us. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. See, the physical is starting to come out. And he begins to talk about our eyes. See, the rabbis, the Jewish teachers taught that the eyes reveal the soul. It reveals the true person. And she responds and she says, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. This means fresh. This means lush. What it means is it's unused. It's not been used yet. That time is coming. But it hasn't happened yet. And so we see this last attraction. It is physical attraction. It is this physical attraction. What what he's saying here in this song, in this poetry, is that the physical is good as well. God created it. God created you for a physical attraction, a sexual attraction. It was created by God. 
But here's what happened is Satan wants to take what God has created and to pervert it and to, to take it all out of order. I was at Costco a while back, and I ran into this couple I hadn't seen in a long time. And so the guy sees me first. He goes, Shane, is that you? And then the very first words out of his mouth, he goes, wow, you're losing your hair. I'm like, <laughs> I wanted to say to him, wow, you've gained a lot of weight. But I didn't. I did not say that. So guys, we're going to practice this. Because if... Uh, if you're with a girl and she says, does this dress make my hips look big? You're going to say, I didn't even notice you had hips. I, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> See, this young woman in our story, she feels insecure about her appearance. She has a tan. She doesn't feel like she's very attractive. She wonders if he could actually love her. But we'll see throughout the book of Song of Solomon that her confidence begins to grow. By the time we get to chapter 8, she'll say, if one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. What she's saying is, by the end, she is convinced that she is more valuable to Solomon than all of his wealth, and he's the wealthiest man alive, but she's more valuable than that. Look what Solomon says. He says, the beams of our house are cedars, the rafters are our furs. I want you to see what he's saying there. He says, we build this house on the right foundation, that we're going to build it with the strongest things available, that our house of love is going to be built solid. It needs a solid foundation. And then here's this last verse we're going to look at. It's in chapter two, verse seven. It says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Do not arouse or awaken love. There will be a time for this to happen. The time is not yet. It is not yet. See, God created attraction and intimacy. God created sexual attraction, but it has its place. We're going to talk about that in two weeks because it's actually, it's the culmination. It's the very center of this book. We'll see their, their honeymoon night where it all culminates. God created sexual intimacy. God created it for all of its beauty. God created it for all of its passion. But if it gets out of place, it will be one of the most destructive parts of your life. Here's the bottom line, is that true love happens not by finding the perfect person, but by seeing the imperfect person perfectly. See, here's where most people are. They're trying to find that perfect person. Let me just give you a clue. They don't exist. There is not such thing as a perfect person. We begin to see the imperfect person perfectly. We begin to see through all of the imperfections, all of the mistakes, and true love says, I love you, that I still love you. See, that's what true love does. That I love you, you're an imperfect person, I'm an imperfect person, and I still love you. When I first got married, I tried to change Darla into what I consider to be the perfect person. 
If you've ever tried to do this, you know how well this works. Let me tell you what marriage is. Marriage is two imperfect people coming together, learning to love each other through those imperfections. I'll tell you what marriage is. It is selflessness. Marriage is what God uses to build our character to become more like Jesus. It's when you choose to be selfless and to give yourself to somebody else. See, you'd be amazed at what happens when you start speaking life into that person. See, I don't need to tell you who you are. I need to tell you who you can become. See, I don't need to tell you who you are because you already know. You don't need to tell them who they are. You need to tell them who they can become. Because with God, all things are new that you speak life into people. See, there is nothing that speaks louder to our culture than our relationships because the world is watching us. As followers of Christ, they're watching us. They're watching how we treat people in our lives. We're watching how we speak to them, how we honor them, how we love them, how we respect them. And it speaks to our world that there is Nothing in this world like that. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, well, good for you and Darla, but my, my relationships aren't like that. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how I've messed up. I may not know that, but I know what God says about us. See, when it comes to my relationship with God, there are seasons of my life that I was not very attractive. And God had every right to say, you know what, you're not what I'm looking for. But that's not what God did. Instead, God decided to love the unlovely. Instead, he decided to love this imperfect person. And I can tell you that God has changed me and God continues to change me that I'm a work in progress, that God changes me and transforms me on a daily basis, and that's what God wants to do with you. I'm inviting you to finish this series with us because I think God wants to speak into our relationships, and I'm inviting God to continue to do his work into you because God has a work for you. And so many times we come and to this setting, and we just bring all of our failures. We think, I don't know how I could ever do it. And God says, I make all things new. And I can give you new starts, give you new hopes and new dreams, because that's the power of God. So I want to ask you just to, just to bow. I want to pray over you and pray for you. Wherever you find yourself today, Maybe what you just begin to praise is, God, I'm just surrendering everything to you again today. I'm surrendering it all. So, Father, that is our prayer. God, we come here from different backgrounds and different experiences, and God, collectively, we surrender to you. We surrender our relationships. We surrender our past. We surrender our hurts. And we ask you to do something beautiful with them. God, I pray that you would help us 
to love the way that Jesus is loved. God, thank you that Jesus came to sacrifice his life on the cross for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.